Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. So good morning, uh, Lifeline, and those of you on Zoom, Rick asked me, he said, hey, you want to do this on Zoom? I said, nah, man, nah, I can't do Zoom. Not at, from the house. I got to stand when I talk and <laughs> I don't do this. You know, you have people who go to school, they become great. Um, people who can speak like the Barack Obamas. I don't have that gift. It's, it's, this is all by faith for me. And so when you read my life story, you'll kind of see that, that I, uh, public speaking is not something I just, um, volunteered myself to do. The Lord sent me. No, no, no. It wasn't that. It was like God <laughs> pushing me along the way. Well, good morning. Well, we're going to hear, we talk about Dr. King. Obviously, um, Dr. King, for most of us, I'm, I'm 57, so uh, have a, a fun memories of him. Can remember watching him on TV like most and just seeing him seeing videos and movies and just um, of this man speaking and just having a kind of oral um, communication style that the Lord gave to him that was probably one of the best that we've ever seen. I think the speech in Memphis when he was there um, speaking to the, um, the, um, the uh, garbage truck, garbage drivers and and he was, I've been to the mountaintop and you could just, as a preacher, you can just discern like, man, this guy's got something, something, you know, God's, we call it God's grace, God's anointing. And, and it was just a powerful speech. And he talked about, he's been there, he's seen it, he's looked over. And I think some of that stuff has kind of impacted my heart. I know it has because even at Urban Hope, our visions from Egypt to the promised land, people always ask me, man, what kind of vision is that? You think you're Dr. King or something? No, I don't think I'm Dr. King. Um, don't want to be Dr. King, but do want to kind of talk about him, his speech, and and get into some things. As I was, um, my normal preparation for any time I talk, like I said, I'm not a natural-born public speaker. It's, it's a work of grace in my life. And so it's in always my habits. I like to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I can just speak, but I'm not like that kind of a speaker. So talk to me. What would you like for me to share as it relates to who I'm speaking to, those on Zoom, those who I can't see, and those of you who are in the audience? And, and I think the Lord started talking to me, and Rick was texting me, and see, I'm working on it, and I was sitting on the couch had my earphones on, had some Christian music, instrumental. And my wife looked over at me. She saw me crying. I said, babe, you know, when I'm usually crying in my preparation, she said, I know what that means. <laughs> um, so I can't promise you this morning that there will be some tears. Um, uh, when it comes to the matters of justice, race, and the gospel and Jesus, there's just a lot with me in that, a lot. Um, and I can't deny it. it. It touches me in different ways because it's been such a part of my life. And so to intersect that with Dr. King um, here this morning, and I want to, and it's going to be an encouraging word, 
but I just really want to be very vulnerable with that. So I have a dream. Um, the title of this talk here today is um, The Dream and the Vision of Jesus. That's the title. But I want to start out by reading um, or making some comments about I Have a Dream speech by Dr. King. And so I'm going to read it to you. He said it was on August 28th, 1963. I wasn't born yet. I was born in 66 and I was born in August, but it was a couple of weeks before this. More than a quarter million people participated in the historic March on Washington for jobs and freedom, gathering near the Lincoln Memorial. More than 3,000 members of the press covered this historic march where Reverend Dr. Martin King Jr. delivered the exalted I Have a Dream speech. Originally conceived by renowned labor leader A. Philip Randolph and Roy Wilkins, Executive Secretary of the NWACP, the March on Washington evolved into a collaborative effort amongst major civil rights groups and icons of the day. Stemming from a rapidly growing tide of grassroots support and outrage over the nation's racial inequities, the rally drew over 260,000 people from across the nation. Celebrated as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, speech of the 20th century. Dr. King's celebrated speech, I Have a Dream, was carried live by television stations across the country. I think for those of us um, who are not there, you probably have seen that speech, watched it on YouTube or whatever. Probably we don't get the, the, the gravitas of that day. It was a definite, if you go back and watch it, um, I've watched people who talked about, and King had given that speech before, but on that particular day as he was speaking and those that were sitting behind him, they could just sense there was just like something angelic that was happening as this, as King was speaking um, to the nation on that day. But it was a few years later, and many people don't talk about this, and this is where I'm going to kind of turn a corner. As great as that speech was, it inspired a lot of people. But it was only a three and a half years later, um, 1967, May 8th, King was being interviewed. In the, in the interview, you can find this on YouTube. I wasn't going to show it this morning, but you can just go on YouTube. You can see the clip for yourself. So I'm not making this up. Where Dr. King was being interviewed, and the title of that YouTube is called Dr. King's Dream That Turned Into a Nightmare. So that dream he was talking about on that day in 1963 Three and a half years later, he's being interviewed, and this is what he says when the guy was interviewing him. He says, it is hard to believe that just over three and a half years after that triumph, King would tell an interviewer that the dream he had that day in some ways turned into a nightmare. You know what a nightmare is. It's not pleasant, not good. You don't want to have a nightmare. That's not, I, don't, I don't like nightmares. He said it turned into a nightmare. But that's exactly what he said to veteran NBC News correspondent Sander Van Arker on May 8th, 1967. 
In an extraordinary wide-ranging conversation, King acknowledged the soul-searching and agonizing moment he had gone through since his most famous speech, and he told Van Arker that the old optimism of the civil rights movement was a little superficial and now needed to be tempered with a solid realism. And just 11 months before his death, he spoke bluntly about what he called the difficult days ahead. I have just recently come back on Facebook. I took about a four month hiatus from it, just needed to get away from it, especially when the book came out. Didn't don't didn't want the fanfare and all of that. I appreciate the love. People texting me, messenger sites. Let me get off and just let that uh bypass me and and just try to. But I've recently come back on in a few weeks and an organization that I'm partnered with and they talk about race, they study race and and wokeism and all of this happening in nonprofits and in the church and, and et cetera. And they're good friends of mine. And they posted yesterday, and I it just it was just so interesting in what they said. Here's what they said with this post on Facebook. They said, um, because this this post really tempered me. It, it really uh it really um Help me understand uh, what they posted. Uh, it's really important what I'm about to say. And if Jesus is left out of this dream and vision of what we call this gospel reconciliation, then it's all for naught. But here's what they, they posted. It says, we aren't even close. We aren't even close to hitting, in quotations, peak woke. Yet, so what we're experiencing now here in America, he says, you think this has been bad the last five years? They said, what's coming? And this group, they have the pulse on this stuff. I try to keep up with it as much as I can. I told Dr. Rick that, but I said, man, <laughs> I, said, I just have a hard enough time staying with the gospel. And I can't keep up with all these new, 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 new things. And I have a lot of Gen Zs in my church. And so, man, sometimes I've been listening to them. I say, I know I got to get out of here. <laughs> but I love them. <laughs> but, but anyway, so this says, we haven't even close to hitting the peak woke yet. They said, wait until Gen Zs or lead pastors, politicians, generals, and business leaders. Um, so wait until they say, we're going to really be in trouble. And so basically what they were trying to say, and there was a lot of comments on this, on this post, this means that in every waking generation, the desire to get justice, to get equity, to get some form of reparations from past wrongs will be pursued more and more. As Pastor Harden moves off the scene and new leaders come in, it's going to be this, this drive to try to make every wrong right by human power 
and strength. This will, like in all times and in the past, will inevitably lead many to the same reality that Dr. King arrived at in 1967, including myself. Brothers and sisters, there is no utopia dream of unity, harmony, equity with fallen human beings outside. And I say this with, with all of it, what I can say it within me. Please hear me. Please, young people, hear me. There is no utopia, a utopian dream of unity, harmony, and equity with fallen human beings outside of the dream and vision of Jesus. There's none of it. I tried to find that utopia for years, and I sought it with all of my heart, and only to find that it left me more empty and caught up in my own nightmare because I was in a state of being angry all the time. And I was trying to correct and exact the vengeance on every act of sin done by people to me and around me. People of my color of skin. Me, Pastor Hardy, are going to fix it. I'm going to go back in time and, and somehow be at the docks of the trade, slave trade and just say, stop it. <laughs> and I don't know how I got there, but I was there. I would stay up all night trying to figure this stuff out in my mind. And it only just exasperated me more and more. This correcting of wrongs was too big for my heart to bear. I didn't have enough bandwidth to measure out justice accordingly. Let me say that again. I didn't have enough bandwidth as a human being to be able to correct every sinful wrong of injustice that was done not only to me and my family, my mom and everyone else that looked like me, I didn't have the capacity to be able to fix all of that. And nor do you and I, but yet we try. The dream and the vision of Jesus is important for us to, to really understand this. And this is where God has just, as I reflect on King, I think I said last year when I came, I, had a, I got a book that was given to me by a gentleman, as I was speaking on reconciliation, I was weeping in that sermon a lot. I'll never forget it. It was a cold winter day in Michigan, in Holland, Michigan. It was about 40 of us. He gave me a book autographed by Dr. Kareem King. He said, the Lord said, here's the book. You need to have this. This is for you. I've had it in my safe for 40 plus years. It's worth some money. I was going to hand it down to my children. But the Lord told me to give it to you. And so I have this book. Last year, I think I brought it. It's in a little paper bag, plastic paper bag, and I have it. Sandra keeps telling me, will not you just put that up somewhere? I said, I don't, I don't know why I don't do it, but it's, you come in my house and sitting in the living room in a Ziploc bag. <laughs> and um, I 
thought about bringing it. I said, nah, but I held this book and it was given to me. So there was some connection with me and Dr. King and, and that the fact that I'm a public speaker and I have this vision for our church uh, about the promised land, which is what King spoke about in Memphis the night before he was killed. So there's some correlation with me and King that I really can't explain. And I reflected on why God gave me the book. And, I, and then I was in Grand Rapids. So now that I'm in Birmingham, that book really speaks to me more because if you know anything about Birmingham, this is where King spent a lot of time in jail. He wrote back to the churches. So there is some overlap in there that I cannot deny. And I ended up in Birmingham and I still don't know how. Birmingham was not in my journal. I never talked about it. Never had really been here, but here I am. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, and, and God is doing what God is doing. But, but before God brought me here, I think God really wanted to embed in my heart. He knew, he knew my story before I knew my own story. And um, God knew what I was attempting to do. Um, you'll see that in longest of way. My, my racial woundedness, more than I can explain here today. You read the book, you'll see it. And what I was longing for, what I was trying to get, but I was trying to play his role. But what God did for a number of years as I was clamoring as a, as a, as a young man, fatherless, with all of these things and past and history and, and just trying to figure out, you know, why can't we just get along? Why can't this, whatever this unity is, it seems to be always running from me. I can't put my hands around it. There's a um, there's an evasiveness to it, and that that burden led me uh, to a desperate plea, heart longing. And I would question Jesus whether he was really what he was. Was it just made up? Was Farrakhan right? Was the Islamic brothers right? and the Hebrew Israelites, and many others. So I pondered, said, God, where are you in this? And where were you when the greatest of atrocities that you can put up in any movie and watch about black and white and all of hostilities if you just want to fill yourself with that stuff? Because it will, it will definitely... Um, Highlight. And so in that, um, I just started spending time in John 17. Jesus, upper room of the discourse, he's about to go to the cross. He's about to die. You know, when you're on your deathbed, your words are few. There's gravitas to them. You're about to leap over. So you don't want to be just joking around. You want to make your words mean something. And so Jesus is, 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 is goes into this, this prayer, which I'm calling this prayer that is behind the dream and the vision of Jesus. His, his, his heart, his desire for his people. And so I'm just going to read through it. And that's where my wife looked over and she saw me weeping. Because I think sometimes 
as we come to the word of God, I think we forget that this is the word of God. This is a true rendition of the one who is and was and is to come. And he um, uh, prays this prayer. And I'm just going to walk through it. So if you can turn to John 17, I'm going to read it, look at it on your phone or whatever the case may be. And there are four points that I want to bring out in this, in this prayer of Jesus that is behind the vision, the dream and the vision of Jesus. And so the first point to understand concerning the dream and vision of Jesus, I want to just read it first and then I'm going to stop at verse nine, but I want you to see the first point. Here we go. It said, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Cosmos. You see this word world a lot here in this chapter. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. And I have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, here's my first point. My first point is understanding. To understand concerning the dream and vision of Jesus. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying. I am not praying for the world. Let that sink in. I am praying for them, his disciples, his people, who have come to believe in him, but I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, <clears throat> Jesus says. I remember just, because at this time in my life, I had this kumbaya that I'm going to take everybody, all black people, whether they were Christians or not, all white people, whether they were Christians or not, whether they actually believed in Jesus. But somehow I had this utopian mindset that I was going to take all these people 
And somehow, by Alton's power of, of persuasion, and I'm just going to make us love each other. But then you come across a text like this, and here Jesus, he's, he's, he's about ready to go to the cross. He's saying, I'm praying not for the whole world, but I'm praying for those that you have given to me, those who have come to me, those who have put faith in me, those who believe in me that I am who I say I am. I'm praying for them and not for the world. That's hard pill to swallow for some. That Jesus said, I'm praying, but I'm, I'm praying for Alton and Rick and Kiara and all those and Chris. I'm, I'm praying for them, those who, who are my children, who, who, who live for the word of God. But I'm not praying for those who are not mine. Which leads me to my second point that we need to understand concerning the dream and the vision of Jesus. And this is why I think King, why he said his dream turned into a nightmare because if you're just trying to corral the whole world, people who hate each other and then no love for Jesus, I just don't think there is no power on this side of heaven that can do that. And so it will turn into a nightmare. Mine turned into a nightmare because what I realized, I could never get the Hebrew Israelites, the Islamic, the Farrakhan followers of the way to love white people, no matter how hard I tried. You can't get the KK guy to just, he just want to give up what he believes in to love. It's just not going to happen. You can write all the laws you want. You can legislate, you can march, you can do all of that, and that's all well and done. But I'm here to tell you the heart is too complex for a man-written law to persuade. It's just too hard. We need another law. And so Jesus goes on in his prayer. Verse 9, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, not the world, that they may be one, even as we are one. My second point, verse 11, he said, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. Who are the they? God's people, the church. Jesus is praying for oneness, unity, and harmony among those who are his through the gospel. Young people, sit with that. This is Jesus talking. 
This is why I think King Dream turned into a nightmare. His own words, not my words. Because he realized this is bigger than any man. Though he was, has a persuasive speech of oral skills, but they were not strong enough to bring this about. What Jesus says here in verse 11. He said, I was praying for those that they would be one as we are one, that they would be unified, that they would have harmony. And this all comes through the gospel. My third point to understand concerning the dream and the vision of Jesus. Let me keep reading. Verse 12. And while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And I have guarded them. And not one of them have been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Not of the world. And he says, um, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We need to understand this. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus will always lovingly discipline over time. He will always, hear me, he will always sanctify his sheep, his people, his bride, his true beloved in the truth of the gospel. The truth that we are equally sinful and stand in need of a savior. And so let me explain this this mean. When I was on this journey of trying to fix all the wrongs, Somewhere in my thinking, I had forgot, or maybe it got limited in my thinking, how sinful Alton Hardy was. People often ask me when they read, know my story, say, how have you come to the place where you have forgiven your white brothers and sisters? I said, ma'am, sister, whoever, you have no idea of God's grace and what it really means when God pulls back the covers off your own heart. I mean, mean when, when God just said, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pull my grace away. I'm just gonna allow you for a season, for a moment. They feel a lot, theologians call this, this a severe mercy where God just steps back and he just pulls the covers off of you. He just allows for you to see the, the depths of your soul, your own heart. Brothers and sisters, 
It is one of the most humbling, severe mercies that God can give you. If you say, Pastor, I struggle with understanding grace, I would dare you to praise the God. Show me what it looked like, what a, what a human being looks like when he stands in the holy of holies presence. I will promise you, you will beat Isaiah saying, holy, holy. You will cry out, oh God, get away from me. I am wicked. I am, the, I, am, I am more wicked than what you can ever even imagine. I saw the holiness of God. God, in a season of my life, when I was struggling with all this racial stuff, God pulled back. Oh, my brothers and sisters, I beg God for mercy. He said, God, I can't handle this. I couldn't, God, you can't do me like this. I was begging God for his mercy and grace. My prayers were not for mansions, a job, homes, houses, make my children well. My prayer to God, Lord, have mercy on me. I am an unclean person. I am unholy. I am not right. I am just as wicked as any white man who's a KKK. My heart is defiled. And I long for God to show me mercy. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, sanctify them, make them holy. Well, how do you think that happens? It happens through his word. God sacrificing our hearts. He says, show them, sanctify them in the truth. That we're all the same that we're no better than the other, that we hate sometimes. That the same sin that was in Adolf Hitler's heart is the same sin that was in me. But Jesus, by his grace, he sanctifies us in his truth, which is his word, which is truth. And coming to my last point. But this is a big one. The dream in the vision of Jesus. Verse 20. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in my in me through their word. That they may all be one. You can see this prayer progression sanctification, and now he's moving it up to us. He said, I do not ask for these, only those that are in this room with me here today, Father. Jesus said, I know Alton Hurt is coming. He's going to struggle. He's going to have hate in his heart to the point that when my first son was born, his name was Ahmad Rashad, gave him an Arabic Islamic name. I'll never forget when the nurse came in the room, this is before you had internet. She says, Mr. Hardy, where are you going to name your name? And I say, I'm not going to give him a white, use the bad word for white people, slave master name. That's where I was. So I said, give me a book. They gave me a book. And I ain't have time to go all the way down to disease. I saw my, that's it. As long as it ain't right. 
Ahmad Rashad, my son to this day, says, Dad, why are you giving me this? This is where I was. But Jesus knew. He knew he would sanctify me. I was hurting. I was clamoring for something that I couldn't get in all of the books. And there were books then, books now. There will always be books that will tell you that this is not true. That something is wrong with this book. That this book has been contaminated by guys like Rick and Chris. That's been contaminated by white men. They, they've touched it. And it keeps me down as a black guy. But Jesus, his prayer for the dream of one among his people, it's not just any prayer here. This is God in human flesh praying. I don't think people understand that. This is Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God. He's praying. His prayers are not maybe like some of our prayers. His prayers never hit the ceilings. His prayers go straight to the father's heart. He prays. He says, I do not ask for these only. All for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. So that the world, the cosmos, those that are not of his, they're looking. There are people who are looking at me in Fairfield and Birmingham. This is, you hang out with Rick and you got whites around, you got these stories. We don't like that. Why won't you take the story, Pastor Hardy, and flip it and make it a, a reparations tour to get even, to get justice, to get mercy? But what they don't know, what they don't understand, that these words here from Jesus, they have, over time, they've made their way down into the inner being of my soul. So even when I try to shake it, even when I try to just say, so, all right, I'm just going to line up with the color of my skin because that's how this race thing plays itself out is what color skin do you have? But what Jesus is telling me, oh, this is deeper than skin tone. This is bigger than skin pigmentation here. This is a heart Thing. This is this is an eternal thing. This this thing called this oneness. It goes beyond. And Jesus says, "I want you to live in this reality that those who don't even believe it, they will see and know and bear witness." Which is what He calls the world, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, and I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. 
so that the world may know that you sent me. And you have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, my glasses are fogging up. I can hardly see here. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I've made them known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me, the love that the Father has for the Son, may be in Alton. And I in them. I can remember. You read my book. I'm trying to tell the story that I'm on a journey and I'm looking for somebody. I'm fatherless in the natural sense, but I'm looking for somebody, someone that would love me like this love. I said, God, because for a while I just think, well, Jesus doesn't have the power to make people one. The hostility is too deep. It's too, it's too wide. There's been too much wrong done. But here Jesus says, I'm going to make them perfectly one. But how? How will you do that, Jesus? Who are you that you can make people who hate each other, that you will make them one? He says, through my love. Me showing them how much me and the Father loves them. Unconditionally love. A love that you can't run from. It's over-consuming love. And so Jesus says, it's this gospel love. This love which was demonstrated to us, as Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. I was no better than anybody else coming out of Sardis or anywhere else in any inner city. But God made that love real to me. That he demonstrated it. While I was a sinner, you were a sinner. Christ died for us. And this love is so amazing. And the sound of it is so sweet. It was that love that overcame a poor sharecropper's kid from Sardis from the sharecropping community of Alabama. It was this love that removed my anger, my desire for revenge. It was this eternal love that drew me into this thing called the local church, the eternal bride, according to what John says. He says in John, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, and after this, I looked and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number. 
It was from every nation, every ethnos, from the hood, from Europe, from Australia, from Africa, from Russia, from Japan, from China, from Korea, South Korea, North Korea, these people from all over the world. These tribes, these peoples in their languages, and John said, I saw them standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and they had palm branches in their hands and they were crying out with a loud voice and they had one song in unison, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and hand to the Lamb. Here you can see in our close. I studied and read these scriptures when I get weak and when there's racial uprisings and the intense pressure comes at us from all sideways. I go in my back room and I get my Bible and I just remind myself while I'm on this side, the spiritual warfare is real. But I see the vision and the dream of Jesus a reality. And no matter what Farrakhan says, no matter what they can say, they can call me Uncle Tom all they want. They can call me, I'm doing it for the money. I'm doing it for this. I'm doing it for that. No. I see the end of the book. And I see Jesus' dream and his vision in reality. And that, my brothers and sisters, is my Dr. King dream here today. That the gospel is true. It brings us into perfect oneness because of everything I just read to you that Jesus prayed for. Let me close with prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for how Dr. King's life pointed us to a, a more significant reason that when we lose sight of the story in John 17, all of our dreams and utopia ideals of human reconciliation were turned into a nightmare. But you tell us here in John 17, that there would be no such nightmare for those who have been loved by the Father. And you have placed that love within our hearts and that we will love each other across our social, economic pigmentation lines on this side. And I pray that you're doing that for me now at 57 years old here in Birmingham and that you are making those who are observing that there's something unique about urban hope and the sense of, and Lord, I pray that you continue to do that, not only at urban hope, but throughout all of Birmingham and throughout all of America and all over the world. That your children, your people will step into this oneness, this unity, this love for one another, as you and the Father have loved each other from all eternity. We ask for this to be a real lies embedded gospel truth on our hearts here today and forevermore. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.